Is Morrison preparing for a spring election? The winter of COVID is coming. Sabre-rattling about China. And the good news is about solar boats. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison. And joining me, as always, is the <laughs> lovely and leopard print... I know, right? Van Vadam. Go so beautifully with the tracksuit pants. How are you, Van? I really turn it on for him when we do these. You know, I've got the tracksuit pants and the Ugg boots, and he's just like... I'm wearing a hoodie. I know, right? <laughs> and I wouldn't have you any other way. Hoodie Not only a hoodie, a Deakin University Student Association hoodie. Proud life member, proud life member. I know, baby. That's I know. right. Join your student association. Join your union. I say it every week. Yeah. Yeah, It's yeah. good advice. So another another big week. Collectivise or die. <laughs> another big week. Uh, in the realm of Australian politics, Australian economy, the globe, uh, we're seeing some interesting, interesting rumblings. People might remember I uh, participated in a webinar a few weeks back and there was some discussion there about an article Nikki Sava had written um, saying that despite what some people were saying, she was of the view Morrison was gearing up for an election later this year. And a lot of people were discounting that. However, it seems to be raising its head again, Van. Well, we saw that the Liberals used this strategy to their advantage in Tasmania. Like, that's an old Liberal government in Tasmania now. Yeah. And they surfed the COVID wave, really, did popular things and made people feel safe during the worst of the crisis, i.e. divorcing Tasmania from the mainland, which <laughs> we can all understand, sure. really, yeah. from the perspective of Tasmanians. Um, and they, of course, have retained power, or Though it is not, I, I'm not aware. About the same, basically the same, the same number of seats. They did increase their votes slightly, but nowhere near the kind of landslides we saw in Queensland, NT, or certainly not WA. Well, they are liberals, but this is the thing: they were the incumbent government, and we know that incumbent governments have had what's known as the COVID, the COVID the bounce, COVID effect, yeah, the COVID yeah. effect, which is keeping them in power, and they they brought their election a year earlier, which obviously blindsided the Labor Party down there quite comprehensively, as it turned out, and they're back. You know, yeah. they've because it's it's not about how many seats you win; it's about winning. Well, this is the thing, right? So, and the other thing that we often see from the Liberal government and frankly probably both sides of politics when they're in government is that when they're preparing for an election they get kind of the administrative ducks in a row so Mm -hmm. the appointments the board positions well this is the thing a lot of friends of the Liberal Party like Sophie Mirabella is now on the Fair Work Commission which is an absolute outrage she's such a if I can use the word champion advisedly here champion of uh, work choices and the complete gutting of the Fair Work Commission of of what was the Industrial Relations Commission. Like it's I just amazing. find it amazing that, you know, we're constantly told by the Liberal Party that everything has to be privatized. And we're constantly told by the Liberal Party that they are the great champions of business and enterprise. And yet, Ben, curiously, we keep hearing about all these liberals who only have an income because they're uh, dependent sucklings on the public teat. You, uh, one of your favourite discussion topics is, of course, the stacking of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal with former Liberal MPs. There's plum jobs for uh, Sophie Mirabella. Like you know, the Liberals are yet to find. Bruce Bilson is now the uh, is now the ombudsman for small business. Is he now? Bruce Bilson is yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. So for people who really hate big government, isn't it amazing? 
seeing how many jobs they get for their friends in it. Tony Nutt, who of course ran the last couple of Liberal Party federal election campaigns, has a very nice job on the board of Australia Post, which With was former uh, member for Ballarat and former Liberal Senator Michael Ronaldson. As Isn't well? it amazing? Yeah. Like I really think the Liberal Party should maybe rethink their privatisation agenda because if government don't control these things, just where would the boys and girls go for jobs when they're done with the Parliament, Ben? Well, I mean, that'll be an interesting... I'd really like just one of them to impress me with their amazing business sense. Like, Turnbull was rich before and rich after, but I just, I find it very interesting that the great champions of business are so loath to actually participate in it. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Christopher Pine did a, a, a podcast recently, um, the, the, the Diplomates uh, podcast. He was well, a guest on it. He was a guest on it, and he actually said that the reason why the Liberals don't like being in um, opposition or they're not good at opposition is because they see themselves as the managerial class. And it's interesting that they, they've now they go through and they appoint all these Liberals and Liberal supporters and Liberal sympathisers and the children of Liberals to all of these government positions um, to essentially manage out the the rollout of the Liberal ideology and the Liberal policy agenda, um, whether it's the Small Business Ombudsman or the Fair Work Commission or the Administrative Appeals Tribunal or uh, an, a, a modal interlink. Uh, these Your are friend all... Jamie Briggs. Yeah. Remember like... Jamie Briggs who got done for inappropriate behaviour in Hong Kong bar and has been rewarded for his disgraceful exit from politics. He's the one who lost his seat to Rebecca Sharkey, who has retained it with some tenacity in South Australia. And he's got a very fancy government job, doesn't he, Ben? He's on, he's on the board of a government organisation um, and, uh, as I understand it, has gone to work for PwC, which in themselves have received many tens of millions of dollars of government contracts in each of the last financial years. What a coincidence! Funny that. Um, so there's lots of this kind of stuff that happens. But, you know, bringing it back to why is it sort of relevant to today other than the kind of ongoing, I guess, um, uh, I don't Because they're s- paying off everybody who owes them a favour <laughs> and they're cleaning house. Yeah. That's what they're doing. So let's they look at the- They get three, four, five-year appointments, right? So yeah. you, you want to do these things before there's any chance of a change of government. Yeah, so you can stay in your plan. Administrative Appeals Tribunal is a seven-year full-time salaried executive remunerated role. Well, well, this is the thing. They call them part-time, but it was raised in the uh, Senate. Oh, no, um, there are full-time jobs there. Oh, yeah, but the, the, a lot of the positions are appointed part-time. Mm. But the what was raised in the Senate um, hearing on this was that some of the so-called part-time appointments are working or claiming back as their pay more days than there are actual days available to work. Oh, so, how? Uh, <laughs> if only we had an administrative appeals tribunal that could oversee that kind of waste effect. Oh, no way. Well, as, I, as I understand it, there's a, a question on notice about that um, to the relevant minister who has promised to look into it. But it does... I'm sure they'll look into it very deeply. It ben. does raise... Very deeply. It does raise the question, um, you know, you're clearing these things, you're making these appointments. Um, and, of course, the other element of, is that we expect the budget to be quite... Um, Flush, right? We expect we've already seen leaks about aged care. We've seen leaks about childcare. We've seen leaks about additional tax cuts. Yes, um, and I wonder who's leaking all of this stuff. Well, it's, it's the not, government, right? The government. It's not really a leak. No, well, this is the soft thing. announcements. If and you like. given the fact that we are cleaning house, and no, Jeremy, you cannot have a Tim Tam. They are not for you. <laughs> you know, that's what you're upset about. Yeah, Thank you. Put the Tim Tams away from the dog. Right. I reckon we're expecting an election-style budget, Ben. It does look that way. It, 
it, with tax cuts, more spending on childcare, more spending on aged care, um, some real targeted sort of coalition of electorate building. Also, the Liberals have done most of their pre-selections, right? So Yeah, that's the dead giveaway. Isn't it, it right? You've, yeah. You've, so we're giving out money to families. We're copying some Labor policies that are very popular mm, mm. and to try and get ahead of the Labor Party. Like Labor go to an election on basically restoring the conditions that we had to go through during COVID, and I reckon it looks pretty good for Labor if they do that with childcare and support, job seeker increases, the rest of it. Yep. Um, but, of course, the Liberals don't really want those things done in the Labor way, so they're going to offer, they're going to try and take the heat out of Labor announcements by playing a sop to that. And that's what the childcare announcement they made yeah. really was. I it- mean, we know that because it doesn't, Labor's policy makes 70, 97% of parents better off, yep. and it's not the case with... No. The Liberals get less than half. Yeah, so we know that the Liberals are also cleaning house in terms of pre-selections. Amanda Stoker, terrifying political entity that she is, has been moved down the Senate ticket in Queensland, Mm. Um, obviously did not make a good name for herself in the proceedings around the March for Justice and other things, was not seen to be on the correct moral side of that issue. the, the Liberals are very confident that they'll be able to lock up Queensland. They did get three senators from Queensland last, yeah, last time. time yeah, Labor yeah. only got one, which was terrible. Yeah. But we are where we are. And uh, we also are seeing all the high-profile exits. Nicole Flint has gone. Andrew yeah. Lamming has gone. Um, George Christensen has gone. They're all turning Kevin over. Andrews Kevin lost Andrews pre-selection. lost pre-selection. So those pre-selections are taking place. And be aware that when parties are positioning for election, it's when all kinds of phone calls get made to media outlets, some anonymously all on the quiet um, about who is going and naughty things about, like, let's look at some of the big liberal scandals. Do not be under the impression that some, you know, intrepid journalist was just hiding under a desk and found (laughs) out about the naughtiness people were up to, you know, the various internal Mm. machinations are in place. And of course, Labor is in a pre-selection process as well. Of course, that's right. We've seen Albo out in Queensland coming out with the new candidates for all of the seats, these marginal seats that obviously Labor needs to target and win. We've seen local mayors get the tap on the shoulder to put their hand up. We've seen a whole range of of people coming, not out of the woodwork, that's the wrong word, but having these announcements with the Labor Party leader about their candidacy. So it's really starting to look like there might be an election in the back half of 2021. Yeah, I think it's likely, and I think that all of the uh, the instability at the heart of the economy, and this is one of the things that the the Liberals are very keen to would be, would be sensible to move an election ahead now rather than later mm. to maintain the pretense that everything's all right, because we know that the budget is being buoyed by these great iron ore revenues, which are of course yep. happening because higher uh, higher Well, Brazil, who's our major competitor for iron ore, I talked about this on Marcus Paul show the other day, they're not exporting any iron ore because they don't have the personnel because everybody's got coronavirus yeah. because they have, you know, an entertainment faction in government mm, as opposed to mm. uh, a ruling party and with predictable consequences. So we do have this money at the moment so things look rosy, but we know that the gap between, uh, you know, the, there's a huge problem with low-wage growth. It's getting worse. Cost of living is going up. 
up. Yeah. And one of the things about coronavirus, like, and you see a lot of sort of incidental chat on the media. Like I had some on social media, people talking about why is wood so expensive? Why are building materials so expensive? Because everybody's been stuck at home for the past 12 months. You know, their houses are falling around for all the wear. And of course, your ticket clippers and your, your capitalist machinery moves in, prices go up and it's getting it's getting really difficult. Yeah, there's a lot of difficulties in the in the economy at the moment. And I think some of the some of the kind of glossing over that the Morrison government is being pretty successful at doing and talking about, oh well, unemployment's not as bad as we thought it would be. Not as bad. You know, like people have more money in the bank than they thought they would. We made forward predictions, which were incorrect, that vastly overstated yeah. the level of disaster. So now we could turn around and go, things aren't as bad, aren't we? Great. Yeah, and it's a pretty typical thing for them to do. But of course, we know, and we've talked about it on this show. We've talked about it in a whole range of different places that to get to full employment, we now need a four in front of that number. It needs to be four point something, not five point something. We're a long way off that at the moment. Uh, we also know that the vast majority of the jobs that have come back after the, the COVID lockdowns have been replaced with part-time and casual jobs, not full-time jobs. Uh, and we are still seeing real problems at both the, the youth end of the market, if you like, for labour and the and the older workers as well. Labour with a U, we're talking about. Yeah, that's right. So it is a, it is a difficult uh, thing. And frankly, as, as the kind of structural nature of that starts to settle into place, people will become more discontented and the kind of glow of, well, we didn't all get coronavirus and die. Some of us have managed to go back to work, even if it's not full time. So that's a good feeling. Some of that glow and that positive feeling will start to come off as unemployment starts to entrench itself at about 5%, 5.2, 5.4. Wages continue not to grow. Some of these costs that you're talking about continue to go up. And actually, we start to continue to have major problems. People become a bit, bit less accepting of it, right? So there is a good there is a good argument to say that Morrison may well call an earlier election. Oh, I think it's definitely going to happen. That's I very rarely make predictions, but I just can't see how dragging it out longer benefits him. Yeah. And of course, on top of all of that, we've got all this sabre rattling around China. Yeah, this is really concerning. So apparently uh, comments were made within the military a year ago that, you know, there's an increased likelihood of war with China, and this has now come out, been reported in the press. Um, Peter Dutton, who's now the Minister for Defence, God help us all, he has been sabre-rattling about China and we're going to take a muscular position and the idea of Peter Dutton taking a muscular position on anything is about as inspiring as munching into a soggy lettuce. Yeah. yeah, he's not really capable of it. Not really. No. And but it's all you know a bit of it's all a bit of posturing, and it's a concern because on the other side there's a bit of this going on in China as well. They call it the wolf warrior, um, f- uh, you know, foreign affairs position where it's about strutting around and showing off Chinese strength. And it's been interesting uh, some of the reportage that's come out of the Philippines mm. where Duterte, despite the advice of the foreign advisors around him. Um, and he's, of course, the Filipino Trump. Yeah. Um, rather a lot of these jokers in power around the world at the moment, causing terrible problems, CF Brazil. Yeah. Anyway, um, 
Duterte has always been very pro-China, mm. despite advice, and sort of you know backing away from the United States and some kind of you know pan-Asianism um, you know tone to foreign policy. Yeah. And of course, the Chinese have moved very close to the Philippines, yeah. and now his foreign minister was using rude words to tell the Chinese to leave on Twitter. Because um, there's been islands in the sea there, right? Yeah, there yeah. are islands in the sea, and there has been Chinese territorial incursion mm. around various um, ocean properties. Yeah. And apparently the United States is looking very closely at what Australia is doing because under Trump there was a lot of sabre rat- like yeah. sabre rattling about China about a trade war, which like mm. they're not easy to win. Trump's line was, oh, it's easy to win a trade war. <laughs> I don't know what he thinks a trade war yeah. entailed, but obviously, you know, China sees the advantage of the weakness of the Trump presidency, which was why, I don't know if you know this, but uh, recently um, it's been revealed that not only were the Russians trying to get Trump re-elected, but the Chinese were as well. Well, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, Because he weakened the United States of America and the cause of democracy worldwide. Why, yes, Ben, that is true. And the, the thing that I think is important for us to remember in Australia is that you know, there are there are a lot uh, a lot of Australians with Chinese heritage who live here and who are proud citizens of Australia. There are a lot of Australians who do business with China, um, with our exports and with our imports. So much of our stuff is imported from China. And, Massive amounts. And you know, while I think we do need a stronger local domestic manufacturing base, um, the, the reality is there are some things that we're going to continue to buy from China, even if we do achieve a, a much stronger domestic manufacturing. And a lot of exporters want to keep exporting to China. Oh, of course. you know, And have made themselves very dependent on that relationship. Yeah. And this is this is the problem. Like, we have entered a period of trade codependency with China, which is supposed to make us more safe. Like, mm, is, mm. it's one of your favourite lines. It's like, trade stops wars. Yeah. You know, because everybody's got... Countries that trade with each other they tend not to. Well, it's, it's that liberal democracies that trade with each other don't go to war with each other. No. So this is the real, this in a way is a real test of that kind of um, geopolitical theory, because it is a geopolitical theory mm. that liberal democracies don't, that trade with each other, don't go to war with each other, because here you've got... A country a, which is not a liberal not, democracy. Not at all. It's an author- authoritarian dictatorship. Yeah, but it is... Also, by the way, everybody, not a communist country, yeah, not a but communist it is, country. Despite the name, you know, sometimes you've got to look beyond the name, the, the label on the packet to see what's actually going on inside. Um, but yeah, French fries are not made in France. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, you know, it is a real it is a real test because China has positioned itself as a real centerpiece player in the global uh, market, global trade markets, right? You know, and it is unquestionably an important trading partner for Australia, the United States, the European Union, the you know, the big uh, even with India, so the big liberal democracies of the world um, rely on trade with China for so many things. Um, of course, Australia has had this sort of policy position of... Germanicus uh, expressing his feelings <laughs> about geopolitics. Trying to um, oh. placate trade with China at the same time as pursuing trade deals with the United States, the RCEP trade deal, which some people might be familiar with, which includes India uh, and a range of other um, nations around, essentially around the Indian Ocean, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was... 
It's supposed to include the United States, South American countries. And the Trans-Pacific Asian. Partnership was about marginalising tri- China in various trade yeah. positioning. Yeah. And, I mean, it's complex because obviously we have a lot of friends who are activists who campaigned against the Trans-Pacific Partnership mm. because of, you know, like appalling... Oh, because there's no ...trade-offs around food safety. And, and there's no protections for workers and there's nothing around just protecting the climate and most of these things are discussed and negotiated in secret. I mean, at least with the EU trade deals, the EU insists on certain protections for workers and the environment and actually doing them transparently with the communities and civil society organisations. But, you know, just to bring it back to China for a moment, I think when you're sabre-rattling around China, not only are you talking about security issues and trade issues, you know, these things have domestic political ramifications as well. Yeah. And we know, we saw in the last election, you know, a lot of those Clive Palmer ads were anti-China. They were anti-China. They were targeted into WA and Queensland, um, where clearly they were felt to have some effect, um, and they were uh, basically suggesting dodgy deals um, around China and Labor. Oh, well, that's very interesting, Ben, because I remember it was the country Liberal Party who sold the Port of Darwin to a Chinese company. Yeah, 99-year lease. Yeah, 99-year lease to a foreign power. And, I mean, this is one of the things that's being talked about that we may have to buy that lease back because Peter Dutton has decided that there are now security concerns about that port being under Chinese ownership and control. And it's like maybe that's a conversation you could have had with your party comrades before they sold off that particular piece of crucial security infrastructure. And maybe, Peter... Maybe you should give Andrew Robb a call because Andrew Robb, of course, was the former Liberal Trade Minister who signed the notorious Chinese-Australia Free Trade Agreement and that has opened the doors to so much uh, Chinese influence. And let's remember when we talk about Chinese influence, we're not talking about people because people don't actually get a vote in China. The Chinese people are not enfranchised to make decisions about the government the way we are. You know, we've seen what happens when they try to do that in places like Hong Kong. Yeah. Dare I resurrect the memory, Tiananmen Square. Yeah. And the the issue that we have is that, you know, the Chinese, there are elements within the Chinese government who are posturing very aggressively. And the statement that I read um, about the, the situation Australia finds itself in, apparently the rest of the world is looking at this new standing up to China business that the government is trying and watching us be punished through tariffs placed on yeah. trade and all these other things that are going on. But there's a Chinese saying that was mentioned in the analysis, which was kill a chicken, scare a monkey. So if the real issue is the United States and Australia is wading in with sabre rattling, somebody from the chaser made this point today, like Australia is a country that couldn't win a war against the emu (laughs) and the idea that we're sabre rattling against the People's Liberation Army of China is... Three million people in that army, I believe. Yeah, literally more people than the population of Brisbane. Yeah, That's... Yeah. Yeah, so it's... Uh, we're not a warlike people. Maybe we should put the swords down. Yeah, look, we're not. We're not. We're not. We, we don't have a large army. We don't have a large air force. We don't have a large navy. And frankly, we don't want those things. That's, no. That's not something that we want to have to need. And if we were nuked, the rest of the world would feel no impact. And I just think yeah. that's... Well, not- and you look at all those films where the rest of the world is being nuked and people come like to Australia and New Zealand to get away from it. It's like, well, what do you think happens if we get nuked? The rest of the world... <laughs> 
kind of gets to go on regardless. So, you know, I don't like to think of Australia as a chicken, but the kill the chicken to scare the monkey is an interesting, it's an interesting analogy. I don't want to be the chicken in that situation. I don't want to be either of those things. No, I, I just think that, and this is what I say to people, because, you know, I get the occasional racist turn up on my, oh, yeah, China, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, look, if you're worried about trade relationships with China, one, don't vote for the Liberal Party, but also if you're concerned about them buying up assets, two, don't vote for the Liberal Party because they're the ones who privatise them. But also, three, what are you doing to support Australian manufacturing? Yeah, that's right. You know, like we make consumer choices every day and if you don't like the idea of, you know, an authoritarian dictatorship um, that totally exploits workers mm. where unions are non-existent, where they they're lie about what the they're... State, I mean, because I've spent a lot of time in China and one of the most extraordinary things about it, it's the lie about the temperature because legally you're not allowed to work yeah. if the temperature goes above a certain um, certain temperature. Certain temperature. If the temperature is like I can't remember what it is, but say it's 28 or something, you're supposed to be able to stop work. So they just have public temper like public temperature gauges that lie and say a different thing. Not to mention the telly screens everywhere that were promoting the Communist Party of China um, while I was there, which is I mean it's confr- it's not Hong Kong like the mainland is a different story yeah. and um, and certainly that's if you have an issue with that don't buy the things they sell like say no to um, say no to the imports they're replacing Australian manufacturing jobs yeah and it is you know I think I think all the saber rattling is really unnecessary I think it does lead to people um, expressing their frustration and their fear in totally inappropriate ways um, it does empower people who are who do have a racist bent there's no question we know that's what happens well we've um, seen that with with what happened in America like yeah. where there are now there's a body count thanks yeah. to anti-Asian racism specifically anti-China racism yeah. that was stoked by the Trump administration around coronavirus. Now, no no, no rational person blames the Chinese yeah. or even the Chinese. Like, I'm no fan of the Chinese government, but I'm not blaming them for coronavirus. No. Like, that's that's crazy racism land. But we can take principal positions about what fair trade looks like Absolutely. and and why privatisation is bad and why picking fights with nuclear armed superpowers is kind of, oh, I don't know, completely insane. Yeah, it's not... And and be critical of like autocracy at the same time. You yeah. can actually sustain those positions and not be a racist Absolutely. but have geopolitical criticism about bad ideology, the ultimate victims of whom are mm, the Chinese people. Well, this is the point, isn't it? So, look, let's. Uh, you, you briefly did touch on uh, coronavirus there and I think, it, you know, today we do need to talk about it because there are two, two very different but I think uh, probably going to get almost equal amount of time on television um, in Australia, obviously, there's the massive, massive wave of coronavirus uh, that is just sweeping across India um, and killing more people than than I can even mention in terms of numbers. I think half a million people were diagnosed today, or almost half a million. Oh, people it's were diagnosed it's shocking. Today. And the thing to remember about what's going on in India, and I've spoken about this before, is that what we're hearing are only the deaths in hospitals. Yeah. We're not hearing about the deaths in homes, and we know that the vast majority of infections are not in the hospital system because the hospital, everything that people warned about when coronavirus started, that health systems would be overrun and then everybody would lose control of the virus, that's happening in India now. And for Indian friends who are communicating with family members, it is a terrifying 
terrifying time. Like the death rate is so high, they've set up crematoria in car parks. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's shocking. It's really shocking. And of course, Modi was not helping matters by continuing to have um, state-based campaigns. State-based campaigns and state-based elections, allowing mass religious festivals and lying and saying that India had because this was Modi's whole thing. We've got it all under control. And of course, the the anti-coronavirus, anti-vaccine people made a big deal about, oh, well, there are hardly any transmissions in India and it's one of the world's most populated countries. So yeah. clearly coronavirus, it's a pandemic, it's yeah. a pandemic, pandemic. And those people used India as that example. Well, 500,000 people being diagnosed a day and they're just the reported statistics. It's a total humanitarian and health catastrophe. And of course, in the middle of all this, we still have somewhere between eight and 9,000 Australians who are, who are now trapped in India and as we've discussed before, uh, have been essentially criminalised uh, or they're, if they make any attempt to come back to Australia, have been essentially criminalised with up to five years in prison or $66,000 fines or both. Yeah. And we've seen lots of discussion about this um, in in the media. Um, cricketers, of course, we have a long history of cricket with India. Um, it's, it's, it's just... It's heartbreaking. I never thought I would see any Australian government... Just totally abandon our citizens in a time of crisis? That the one thing that Australian citizenship should get you is the right to come home. Yeah. I think it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Somebody made the point online today that... The Morrison government has just walked away from its responsibility to Australians who are trapped in in India. Yet when Tiananmen Square happened, yeah. Bob Hawke gave Australian citizenship to the Chinese students who were in Australia when that happened, that if people wanted sanctuary and safety in this country, they could get it. Yeah. And the, the contrast couldn't. Couldn't be well, it's, more it's, obvious. It's so stark, isn't it? It's so stark that that Australia can go from a country that is prepared to offer safety and sanctuary to the citizens of other nations because they need it, to abandoning our own citizens, even though they need our help, even though they're begging for our help. And you see it online. You, you see people going to news outlets looking for help, looking for support. I can imagine MPs who have large Indian Australian constituencies are just besieged oh, at the under, moment. Yeah, they're completely snowed under. And they should be. Like, they... That's, this should be a response from the government, which is based in a recognition of Australian citizenship. Morrison, like, it means something. It's got to mean something that we're a community and that we're a nation and that we have this, you know, inalienable bond with mm. one another by by virtue of citizenship. Like, well, however was, you become a citizen. Well, that was what I, I read something today that said it was talking about the idea of being Australian, you know, nation states nation states are a fiction. They're lines drawn on a map, right? And and when you consider any indigenous communities um, dispossession by the concept of the nation state from 250 years ago till now, or you know, 300 years ago, whatever it might be, um, that's totally true, right? Australia as a concept is just a line, series of lines drawn on a map. But what makes it real? What makes you Australian is how you are connected to other people. It is your shared sense of uh, identity. And, you know, Morrison rails against identity politics. Well, the identity politics that I believe in is that I'm Australian. You know, that I'm Australian. I'm a worker of the world. I 
embrace my fellow man and woman and friends beyond the binary. Like, it's that's the identity that I embrace, you know, and I recognise that being Australian is not perfect. It has flaws and faults, but it means that I have a place where I belong. My passport grants me access to that place, to those artificial lines on a map. It grants me certain security guaranteed by a government elected by Australians to protect Australians. The idea that Morrison believes that he is somehow empowered because he has won a three-year term of office to simply disregard all of that, to simply throw it out the window for all Australians for the rest of time is is the height of arrogance, is the height of arrogance. Who is he to make that decision for the generations to come? Because, of course, we know these things have knock-on effects. When you, when you say, well, you no longer have that right, winning back a right is incredibly hard. It might only take him a press release issued at 12.01, midnight, one minute past midnight. Which is what they did. Which is exactly what they did, to strip away the rights of millions of people for generations. It is. It's it's just outrageous because you're right. Like, what does it mean to be Australian? It means a relationship to one another. Yeah. That we share this word amongst us, you know, that it is just lines on a map. And Australia is complicated, like, it's a complicated sort of pancake stack of nations because, of course, underneath what it means to be Australian, Australian is what does it mean to be Indigenous and within that what does it mean to be Wuthering or Wurundjeri, you know, these are separate things but we inhabit this simultaneous space. We as Australians can't say Australia is a land because it's it, it's many different lands, you know, mm. in terms of the Indigenous heritage in this mm. country. So what does it mean to be Australian? It means an agreement we make to one another to act as a community. You know, this is what the, the Greek word polis, which mm. sort of means city but really means the people of the city Mm. that you had Athens Athens was the people like this isn't a traditional conception of a democracy so when they all evacuated Athens they were still Athens they didn't have to geographically be in that spot being Athenian was about their relationship to one another and that's what what a democracy is supposed to be you know it's a decision we make amongst ourselves to identify what what country is and and it's not land and if you've ever been an Australian who's gone to London or Bali or Auckland or anywhere in the world, you you see that Australians come together. Australians find each other out. So, you know, there's there's that joke that often gets made. You know, Australians in need in need of a holiday who desperately need to get away from things and get away from everything they know and love will go to Bali to hang out in an Australian bar with other Australians and talk about Australia. You know, that's that is what people do. People do seek each other out like that, and. And it's because we have this shared notion. Morrison is stripping it away. He should be opening quarantine facilities, right? Oh, of course he should. Hotels are clearly not working. And just to to come to what's happened today here in Australia, in Sydney, in New South Wales, not far from where Scott Morrison lives and works, of course we've now seen a, a mystery community case of coronavirus. Yeah. So a guy in the eastern suburbs who's in his 50s has tested positive for coronavirus and no one knows how. And people don't know where he's gotten it from and they're not quite 
quite sure who he's been around. And this news was breaking as we sat down to record the broadcast. And it's like, okay, so it's still in the community. What does this say about the necessity of vaccinations, Benjamin? Well, the terrifying thing about this is that New South Wales has one of the lowest rates of COVID vaccination as of last week. So less than 2.5% of the population of New South Wales was vaccinated. And let me tell you, when there's people walking around with coronavirus, clearly somebody had it that hadn't been tested, right? It can't just go from one place randomly to another place, another person randomly. There has to have been a, a string of transmissions for that to occur. And this is why vaccinations are so important, because if there's vaccinations, it helps break up the string. And once you get to herd immunity, it essentially surrounds the vaccine and gives it nowhere, sorry, surrounds the virus and gives it nowhere to go because everybody's vaccinated. We're so far from herd immunity, so far from herd immunity. I saw one estimate earlier earlier in the week that talked about we will be lucky to get to herd immunity by 2024. You know, like that is ridiculous. This yeah, is in Australia. Such, in by Australia, the way, that's not the world. Not the world. That's in this just country. Just in this country. You know, but Scott Morrison can't do it. And 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 you know, to come full circle back to what we started talking about, right? We have had a glorious summer, a glorious summer where we have managed to reopen so much of our economy. We've managed to sell the world our iron ore at near record prices. We've managed to get people back into work, albeit part-time casual, not enough hours. You know, we've managed to, corporations have extracted huge profits. You know, a glorious summer in many, many ways. Now autumn is here. Right, autumn is here and people are not vaccinated. And we've talked about this on the show before. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. And the rest of the world is coming into its summer. The, the, the Northern Hemisphere is coming into its summer. And it has just had one of the worst winters, one of the worst winters you can imagine. And it's had a terrible spring. You know, the, the, the longevity of the virus seems to be extending that the impact of the virus is more severe in terms of how many people get it how, how much resources how quickly they get how it, many resources how quickly it spreads right. so for us to feel like oh well we're okay we're not going to get it we haven't had that bad a run you know you cannot bank on these things. This no. is this is like tossing a coin every day. I just remember when coronavirus broke out last year and everything locked down in March. I mean, we were getting phone calls going, "Oh, look, it'll be done by May." Yeah, you know. And I remember getting those phone calls with people going, "Oh, yeah, well, you know, like the the advice is that it'll be over by May. Yeah, yeah. We'll all be good." Oh, earlier, it'll only be a couple of weeks, and now maybe a couple of months. You know, and it's now been more than a year, and we're still living in the era of coronavirus. And of course, in Australia, things look normal, but you know, it's so fragile. And that's Just the danger. Just ask anyone in London. Like, ask anyone in Paris. Like, ask anyone in New York. These the virus. Just absolutely ripped through entire communities. Mm. You know, mm. ask anyone in India, you know, like if you can find anyone who can have a conversation who isn't screaming for air. And the terrible, you know, there's so much that's terrible about it, but one of the many things that is terrible about it is that the it's, it is spreading, right? So I saw an article, uh, it was on the ABC, I think, uh, where you're seeing parts of Southeast Asia and the Pacific um, having outbreaks and more outbreaks. Uh, And 
you know, India is quite rightly getting a lot of attention um, and and needs help. But sometimes in the media, we have a tendency to look at the very worst and the most local, right? Like there's a having been trained as a journalist, there's a, there's a thing about... He reminds me of this constantly, <laughs> that he trained as a journalist and I didn't. All right, everybody just note that Ben trained as a journalist. For all the good it did me. But, you know, you, you look at what is the biggest and what is the most local. So something can be really small. Like in Australia, we've got one case that's going to be all over the media for a couple of days. There will be more cases, by the way, out of that Sydney situation. Mm. You know, hopefully it won't get to the India, the, the level India's at, you know, but... But India is so big. If you fall in the middle, if you're one of these countries that there's not a lot of Australians in, because that's that's your local angle. If it's overseas, there's an Australian in it. it. You know, if it's not the biggest, even in the region, you maybe aren't getting much media coverage. But there are huge numbers of people all around the world now who are infected with COVID. And the, the little drop that happened and everybody, oh, we're on top of this now. And, and America sorted itself. And America has, well, Joe Biden sorted out America. Joe Biden did sort out America. The world's biggest superpower. You notice how days. we report on America yeah, all the time? Yeah, yeah world's biggest superpower. Um, but that's not the end of it. It's not the end of it. And we have to continue to be vigilant. We have to continue to wash our hands, wear your masks on public transport. I, you know, look, there's some simple things we can do here. But, of course, the Morrison government has to do the heavy lifting. It has to roll out those Yeah, but that's not what's going to happen. it has they to get those quarantine do centres heavy, open. They don't do heavy lifting. They don't well, want to build a quarantine. I mean, it took us months to set up the man vaccine can open, The man can open an offshore control. detention centre yeah. in a couple of weeks for a family of four, you know, to be... At an expense of hundreds of millions of dollars. At the expense of hundreds of millions of dollars, he can tie up parliamentary time for days and weeks in order to try and stop people being taken out of those centres for medical reasons. But he can't enact he can't enact policy to use pre-existing centres in Darwin. I mean, th- this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. He can't repurpose. And it's very hard. Oh my God. But yeah. they're the managerial class. I mean, they have to be in yeah. charge because they're the ma- managerial class. They're just not very good at it. Oh, they're terrible at it. And that's why they keep outsourcing it to bloody management consultants. Like, think of it that way. How much money do they pour into management consultants? Well, they pour it into management consultants because they're not capable of making a decision and they've sacked the public servants who give them frank and fearless advice and actually do the work. So you piles and piles. came out in the Australia Post uh, Senate inquiry uh, just recently, you know, the Australia Post paid $1.9 million for that should we privatise report. $1.9 million. The board didn't even look at it. Why would you bother looking at it? They just p- pay public money out. They can't do anything. They can't do anything. Sorry, that's my... I, As you can see, I feel very strongly about these issues. I'm, I feel strongly too. Thank yeah. God we're a couple. Thank God. Well, that's right. Well, folks, look... <sighs> I don't know about you, but I need some good news, oh, man. Oh, no, I have got, like, the ultimate piece. Because I'm hearing solar boats. Oh, uh, yeah, the ultimate <laughs> piece of Van Batten good news. And I mention this because, Ben, what am I obsessed with? Solar boats. I'm obsessed with solar boats because... If there are any Australian manufacturers out there uh, or large investment firms or super funds or anybody else... We actually have <laughs> some of the best um, nautical engineers
engineers in this country who are trialling solar oh. boat models, I think, at the University of Newcastle. We have some of the world's best shipbuilders in this country. We do, and we have those shipyards in South Australia, yeah. which could be put to public use, retrofitting shipping around solar power yep. and reducing the carbon footprint of shipping. Because shipping has a massive, massive carbon footprint. And, and you know, yeah. this is while we trade to stop wars, that's kind of an issue. But the other thing that I'm obsessed with, as you know, is plastic. Yes. And I have driven you completely mad trying to get plastic out of our lives. Yes. Which I know you resent. I don't, well, I don't resent it. It's just an imposition. That's yeah, all. There we go. That's, uh, there yeah, we go. The structure of our society is such that plastic still plays a very large it's role. It's really hard. And I've written about this trying to get plastic out of your life is really difficult. Yeah. So, um, obviously, I am very concerned about where plastic ends up which is generally in the ocean. Yeah. And there's like an area, I think it's now the size of Texas, which is basically a floating garbage island yeah. um, in the Pacific, like this awful. terrible, terrible, awful ocean wastage. So there's a guy and uh, I believe he is based in France and his name is about to pop up on my screen, but he has developed a solar-powered catamaran Lovely. That obviously uses wind power, yep. um, which is you know a bit a bit you know old school when it comes to boats, but sure. the wind still works. Yeah, yeah. And his catamaran does what happens at the end of one of your favourite movies, Back to the Future. You know how Doc comes back at the end of Back to the Future, and he's powering the time tra- traveling DeLorean on garbage. Yeah, yeah. Well, this guy has worked out how to power. A, to to use plastic garbage mm-hmm. as a means of helping to power this also solar and wind-powered catamaran. So the way that this catamaran works is that it takes garbage, it can do three tonnes an hour. Wow. And takes three tonnes of plastic garbage out of the ocean. And uh, because plastic does float, it skims off the top so it doesn't yep. harm marine life. And it means that... Um, this 184-foot boat, which mm. is called the Manta, mm. which is the sort of test model, has proven hugely successful, mm. and it turns the plastic it, it harvests into fuel. So it gets the plastic out of the ocean, um, and it's sustainable, like it powers itself. So the catamaran can travel indefinitely on the power generated by wind, solar, and garbage. It's pretty cool. Oh, it's pretty amazing. So the guy who did it, who his name is Yves Bourgnon, that's my terrible French. Um, he's a professional yacht racer and he, as a yacht racer, he was just stunned by the amount of garbage that he kept encountering mm. in the ocean and was like, I've got to do something about this. And they reckon that they can get, um, if they build just 400 of these, they could remove 33% of the ocean's plastic pollution. Fantastic. And just travel around and... What great news. Yeah, and I was just like, these are all my favourite things. And a big shout-out to the MP for Griffith, Terry Butler, who shares my passion for solar boats and has given parliamentary speeches about solar boats and that that's really – I mean, what an amazing opportunity that could be for Australia for new jobs, like, like you know, environmentally sustainable jobs, using the resources we already have, good union jobs, working in manufacturing in shipyards and, you know, retrofitting shipping to make it solar efficient would be amazing – and I'm like, why aren't we building the solar-powered garbage-eating catamaran? Like, <laughs> Well, maybe we will. Maybe we will, Van. Terry just cheered me up so much. I was like, these are all the things 
things I'm interested in. Such great times. So, look, that's the week on Wednesday for this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening, for sharing our link, uh, for getting on Facebook and Twitter. For getting plastic out of the ocean. For getting plastic out of the ocean. Uh, you can find us, of course. Well, you have you have found us if you're listening to us right now. But, you know, if you've got friends who don't listen to Apple Podcasts but listen to Google Podcasts. Or Spotify. Or Spotify. We're all over the place. We're not we're, hard we're to everywhere. find. We're everywhere. Podbean. Yeah, yeah. Just, just have a search. Just Google Van and Ben's Podcast. It'll come up. I promise really? you Really? Van and Ben's Podcast comes up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Week on Wednesday. Whatever you like. You know, you can Google it. You might even see some Google ads. That's how fancy we're getting. <laughs> now, don't forget, to, don't forget to tune in to... Sorry, the Ben week- is hugging the dog and it is cute. Don't forget to tune into the Weekend Wrap on Sunday. Uh, and, of course, you can also hear Van on 2SM. Yes, on Marcus Paul in the morning, every Tuesday morning around 8 o'clock. And I love Marcus Paul. I think he's superb. If you live in Sydney, you should listen to his show. Um, he's great. He's been getting some really great guests. Albo was on this morning, and he's our kind of guy. Like, he's... He gets it. Yeah, he gets it. Like, he's pro-worker, he's pro-environment, and sees no contradiction between these two positions. And anyone who holds those values is on my side. Fantastic. And, of course, you can always read Van's uh, pieces in The Guardian as and when they come out. There should be a cracker next week. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye. Bye.